Welcome to The Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today's guest is Dr. Maya Goepel, political economist, member in the International Club of Rome, the new Secretary General of the German Advisory Council on Global Change, and former head of the Berlin office at the Wuppertal Institute for Climate, Environment and Energy. She's furthermore member of the scientific advisory boards of Terre des Hommes, Germany, the Foundation for Peace and Development, and trustee of the Foundation for Sustainability and Democracy. In her work, she focuses on system transformations towards sustainable development, new prosperity models and justice, and emphasizes paradigm shifts as strategic leverage points. She loves painting the big picture and being the translator between different worldviews with the intention to create a common ground for unforeseen partnerships. Maya, it's a great pleasure to have you. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, Mariana. It's very much my pleasure to be connecting with you here today. Well, my favorite question and the first one is how have you become such a force for good in the world? What happened in your life that put you on this path? Mm, well, yeah, no, it's fun to think about those moments, isn't it? Um, I think for me it was a lot just really by my parents. I was brought up in a household that has two doctors campaign against nuclear power in Germany as my parentals. Um, and the parental influence, basically. And then they also sent me to a school being good old 68ers that is trying to change the early dividing into those pupils that are smart, quote unquote, and those that should be doing apprenticeships without the kind of academic backgrounds, um, as Germany is really, really bad in that. We're loving to divide our children early onwards. And so I ended up in a school that's really trying to bring people from all different walks of life into one classroom. And at first I didn't get in because I had two academic parents and they said, sorry, we've got too many academic um, children already here. And that was discrimination. <laughs> exactly. It was discrimination against too many at that time wanting to have an alternative education for their children. And uh, so second round I got in and I do think that had a lot to do with understanding my own privilege just by how... I was being raised and the kind of money that was available and the openness to experiences and explorations that my parents gave me as long as they felt I was doing something that I was behind and burning and really trying to figure out. And those two ingredients, I think, just brought it together, the awareness for environmental issues and then the very first-hand experience of how very differently we are growing up in one and the same society. So you were such a good child, you never rebelled against your parents, did it go against uh, what they were saying? So, Or was it that phase and then you returned? Oh, of course I rebelled. Crazy. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and at first I, it was absolutely clear to me I could never be a doctor or do anything with political issues because my dad had hinted in this direction because uh, he's deviated from being a practitioner uh, or medical um, person into writing about how we don't have a health system but a sickness system in our societies because it doesn't really care for 
people unless they're sick and then it fixes them until they can perform again. But anything like a preventive care system is very much absent and an interest in why do people stay healthy is not really on the radar of what the money is being spent on as well. So I had to go through all of that saying, no way, I'm not going to go your way. And we had to have our going out far too late and sneaking out through back doors and growing our little marijuana plants in the garden and all of that was part of my (laughs) (laughs) And we did have our uh, discussions about boundaries and limits and ideas worthwhile pursuing and others not so much. Absolutely. And in the end, I studied media and communications first because that was really far away from two parents that were medical uh, doctors and teachers. And then in the second round came back to going into teaching and researching about societal change. But it did take the route outside of that first. (laughs) Yes, and isn't that interesting how the parallel between prevention in the medical, in the human body, um, and the prevention in the bigger picture of the Earth's body uh, is bringing these two ideas together because it's come, come from a, the same mindset. And that is what you're currently doing, trying to help humanity to help us prevent the worst. Yes. No, I think that's very nicely picked up. And I think there's so much to learn about really thinking about um, the patterns and the attention. Where do we shift attention to? And when you think about the whole idea about sustainable development coming out of recognizing that we're hurting the system that we were giving and the health of that system, that regenerative possibility of maintaining those living conditions for us, and yet again, we have created institutions like the environment ministries, etc., that would only do the cleaning up. And the same you could say for the social um, labor protection ministries. They're there to intervene if exploitation becomes too high and thus destroys the substance. But what we've never really done since is to really go at the core of how do we produce and consume so that we don't have to have repair ministries anymore, but say how can we get the processes healthy so that this system can maintain itself. Yes, and this is at the core um, of, uh, of your latest book that you published in 2016 that's called The Great Mind Shift, How a New Economic Paradigm and Sustainability Transformations Go Hand in Hand. Well, you're also, as I said, mother of two children, and um, tell us a little bit about the mind shift. It takes a long time to change people's uh, minds, And yet you have focused, which from my point of view is the key, on the shift of the collective mind shift. Can you take us through the top tenets of how this great mind shift can occur at various levels of society? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The intention um, for the book for me was to really try to combine two different communities that I really, really value and think have so much to say about what is important at this point in time. And the one is transformation research. They're really trying to understand how do large systems change and shift and what are the patterns there and how can we try to intentionally influence that shifting so that it would go towards sustainability. And the other one is really looking at the new economic model, highlighting how with the mindset that we've looked at solving the problems, we're going to stay blind to really understanding them. In particular, when we think about how mainstream economics is capturing human needs, that is the one core essence of sustainability. How do we satisfy human needs now and in the future? 
And then without compromising nature's ability to replenish the resources for that, that is the other category, nature, that economics doesn't really say anything qualitative about. So needs is utility, so that we can measure it. And nature is natural capital, once again, so we can measure it. And neither of that says anything about the quality. So this research community is so good at showing what needs to be shifting in the mind in order to be able to understand where we're at stake right now and what could be good solutions. And the transformation research is really, really good at showing that A, these periods where we really come to a crisis, a structural crisis, where we do understand that the infrastructures and the solutions that we've built were not in line with how we understand now reality, so the social ecological systems we live with, are behaving and developing. And yet that way of thinking, that old way of thinking, has informed the institutions and solutions that we've built. And so we have to combine the crisis moment where we are eroding the basis because we haven't looked at nature in a good way and we haven't looked at people's needs in a holistic way either in order to be understanding how we have to change the institutions and solutions so that we can reintegrate what we as humans co-create with our environment and how it's changed. And this is what I've tried to do in the book, to really say if we want transformative change, even though we know, we'll never know exactly how it or what can come around, how can we intentionally work towards it? And how can we intentionally say we really want to have something very different from what we have in place right now? So where's the radical intent whilst then acknowledging that it'll need a lot of single small steps, but persistent and really driving towards the radical vision, aligned steps, coordinated steps in order to get that great transformation that will take decades on the ground. Brilliant. And this is where we come in, where I come in from the investors and entrepreneurs perspective, the business perspective, that is as the core engine of any economy and society. How, what is your recommendation? What can we contribute to that uh, great transformation? So uh, from what we can influence, what needs to be shifting in what we do with capital in company building and uh, with money as, um, as, a, as a natural capital? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think for, there's maybe three levels. Um, and one for me is really on that mind shift level. I think we all have to work together right now and say, what is a development that is justified to carry the title growth or positive development? It's either or. Right now we still hang on to growth, but we don't really differentiate it at all. And right now it really pains me so much to see that people are saying, look, Trump is successful in his policies because the US is growing again. And Europe, look at that. The US is growing so much faster than you are. That is, from my point of view, the essence of why it's future for closing to not really urge people to differentiate what they mean when they talk about growth and to really have a multidimensional set of indicators and frameworks with which we are measuring whether we're going in the right direction or no. Because this way, this discourse is future for closing. We are hiding what we're doing underneath and Europe is supposed to benchmark itself against a type of policymaking that we all know is really destroying our planet and is absolutely ignorant to what was happening on the rest of the world. So this is the first level. Really go into the discursive level and demand from people to say, what do you mean when you say growth? What is the positive return on investment for you? And how can we also measure that in a multi 
variable way. So social return on investment, environmental return on investment, maybe even cultural return on investment. What did it allow for people to bring out in themselves, the human element, right? So the, the architecture of awareness, I, I like to call it, which is very much in the kind of numbers and key terms that we're using to say what we're doing, why we're doing it, justifying it. That will be one. And I think the other one you already hinted to is to get us out of thinking of money as a thingy thing. We, we like to think money is an item, right? It's a bill. It used to be at least a coin or a bill that we're transmitting to someone else. But in the essence, it is underneath that form that it might take a relationship. And I think this is where what you're doing, that kind of work, so important to really acknowledge this is a relationship where some of us have certain capabilities they can bring to the table and others of us have other capabilities, but they, they are of equal value now. We're never going to get anything from money itself. It is an enabling force or an energy in that sense that allows for people to do something because they then can feed themselves, they can buy the things they need, they can engage in the productive processes. And in German, we have this weird saying, Geld arbeitet, so money works. And this is why money should have a return investment, regardless of what it does. And that is, for me, one of the other ones that we have to vet. It is people that are working. And they're enabled by the contribution that someone will be able to make in form of money that will enable the power of individuals to do something differently. So or money as a social relationship or as a social technology might be the other thing. And then to really think about that would be my uh, third point. So when you've got a differentiated idea about what your desired outcomes would be, you're clearly entering in a relationship that acknowledges that every factor in that is of equal value. And then what is the time span that we want to look at? Because right now, a lot of um, transformational impact is being prohibited because we are looking for this short term return on investment. And loads and loads of the things that we say need to come into existence will very much likely be even more profitable under totally economic terms, like we're measuring right now in the mid and long term. But today, since we have to break out of path dependencies, since we have to reorganize our production chains, since we have to retrain our people to enable them to do things differently, will be a cost in the conventional sense. So what is the time span that we want to allow ourselves and how can that capital be patient enough to carry through that time span? And then I would love to learn from you what might be the requirements like institutional forms or contractual forms that would allow for that longer term uh, point of views in this collaboration of uh, I value, uh, I level um, factors in, in making the new come around. Yeah, well, when you really talk to money owners, then you get very clearly and very soon a very clear understanding and idea that they don't really care, um, you know, whether they get, uh, you know, the uh, next year or in 10 years is just a long term. As long as the, there is a livelihood uh, that they can guarantee from their wealth, they're happy, they... I haven't met one single money owner. I'm not talking about money managers. They have a different view because they get um, measured by the fiduciary responsibility. So they do have to care about the for-profit um, coming in. But money owners, they really, they're different. I mean, those who focus on profit only, those are the exceptions, not the rule. 
So people, you know, we have to really move beyond beyond this um, regulation that actually forces money managers to focus on on the fiduciary responsibility, the for-profit only. So this is at the core of where the politics needs to change because it's a profit-driven um, uh, policy that we have in the West right now. And this is uh, the elephant in the room that nobody actually really talks about. And so those of us who actually are focusing toward changing the paradigm to be more inclusive, to be more integral, a more holistic way of um, uh, using capital to to lead a good life, um, those have to work with this, these regulations. And this is, um, as long as the regulations are going the wrong direction, um, little thing, few things will change. We will still keep at 1% impact investing, uh, invested capital of all assets under management is 1% worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. So this is at the core. This is what needs to change. So we are kind of bottom up trying to change things. But those who really want to shift more dollars, money managers, they really have to make sure that they're safe because otherwise they get punished. So what's actually happening right now, they're creating new products so that they can shift money from A to B and uh, get a commission every time they shift the money around. But nothing really changes because it's, it's dysfunctional to begin with. So this is the core of what needs to change. And this is why we're having the conversation with you because you're, you're advising the German government and many other governments. And um, you know, I'm wondering how can we drive the conversation in the direction where we go away from, from this for-profit only and short-term orientation? Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I find it very, very, very encouraging to hear that from you because it is what I think part of exactly the transformation period that we do understand that the old way of thinking, as it's been enshrined in the laws and institutions, is now holding us hostage when we understand that something else would be at stake in order to be called solutions, in order to be saving what we're saying are the foundations of future prosperity. And this is why transition research or transformation research really always talks about working with the pioneers. So you would fall full on in the category of pioneers, that are saying the current rules of the game, as they have been streamlined, are in a downward causality, keeping us hostage and not creating the kind of leeway that we need in order to be scaling up or scaling wide or scaling deep, whichever we want, right? Either make the solutions bigger or say those solutions work really well because they don't exceed a particular size. Let's multiply them as many as we can. And the scaling deep, let's really completely rethink what is the paradigm, the purpose, why we're doing this and how we thus do it best. And then to put pressure against um, people sitting in or find the allies, let's put it that way, the allies within those regime structures that are responsible for creating those kinds of rules and maintaining them. And at the same time, beware that probably you're talking to the ones that I would lump into the category pioneers. And then some people are also quite happy that they can say, I'm just abiding the rules. So I don't have to, A, stand responsible for the consequences because the rules kind of needed me to do that. We do have quite a lot of testimonials of that kind in, if I want to go drastic, Third Reich, right? I was just adhering to the rules, so I did nothing wrong. So we have to challenge on that level that we are all co-creators also of the rules by which we're then running the show. 
And this is why I think this this corporate political responsibility is a term that I've been carrying around this year a lot to say, let's really put pressure on changing the framework conditions that would allow for scale. And I think to be absolutely crucial and a sweet spot if that was coming out of finance as well, because we do always like to categorize the economy in one, not looking at which kind of business models would be allowed to really flourish and grow if we change the rules of the game. Yes, others would have to seed and others would crumble. It's called creative destruction. And the same needs to happen in finance. The ones need to be liberated that really want to help the business models come along that will bring out the sustainable longer-term solutions. And how do we find those forces? And how do we find those voices? And I think in, in business models, it's coming up. But in finance, I, I'd love to see that campaign. So it'd be so welcome and so needed to A, say finance isn't one voice, but to say there is a huge chunk and a growing chunk that wants to work with the real economy and not extract from the real economy, and how do we then put pressure at the different levels for those that are in charge of the rules that you say keep people hostage? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what's currently happening is um, actually uh, the entrepreneurs who have already reached the higher level of consciousness, which is the mind shift that you're actually referring to, I, I believe, where they see the interconnectedness of everything uh, who, and refuse to build companies um, that um, respond to the requirements of venture capitalists, you know, for profit only. So they are basically leaving the game where you find two liars standing in front of one another. The mm -hmm. venture capitalists promising their investors that they are going to deliver whatever 20x um, over, I don't know, five to seven years, and the entrepreneurs who lie to <laughs> to the VCs, you know, yeah, here's the J-curve, and I'm going to deliver you this and that and the other exponential growth within two years. Mm -hmm. So the what I see is the entrepreneurs are actually leaving this game more and more because they see that it's not, it's not fun. And you also see that um, companies are basically stopping from going uh, public. Uh, they actually uh, refuse to play the game of the of, uh, of the global casino, and yeah, if we are the pioneers. Let's hope we're not ending up with the arrows in our back. Now, to your um, to your book, back to your book, the Great Mind Shift and the Transformation. Do you have certain measurement criteria that you recommend our investors and entrepreneurs use to apply to to move the needle toward this transformation because you can only measure what you achieve what you measure so mm -hmm. as long as we keep to the old paradigm for profit only and this is called growth <laughs> like the people telling you how great america's doing <laughs> in terms of growth um, if we want to measure uh, holistic impact, people, planet, profit, culture, and, um, and so on, individual happiness and joy, what kind of measurement criteria would you recommend we use and apply mm -hmm. in our investments in companies? Mm -hmm. I think it would be really interesting to look at what is going on in concrete work that tries to streamline what has been coming together under, for example, the SDGs, because they are the kind of government um, 
measurement, right? We're trying to really incentivize what are the integrated accounting mechanisms would be one. So the environmental um, accounting mechanisms being really straightforwardly physical. And I think that would be one of the elements that I would always strengthen to say, it can't only be monetary. We have to have an idea of where the physical quantities of what is in stock still. Because you were talking about the higher level of consciousness. I think one of the essences there is to have a systems view and really understand when are we eroding the stock to such a degree that it can't bounce back anymore. So we're utterly losing resilience of any one given system and risking implosion. And this obviously is exactly the difference um, that is required to understand climate change or biodiversity loss. Because people say, oh, look, I mean, this little bit more of a degree or half degree of Celsius can't be so bad. Slightly warmer is nice. And then they forget how that is creating the kind of tipping points because it's running down the stock of the atmosphere possibility to circle the CO2 in a way that would keep it stable. And the same with biodiversity. So we have to start thinking in these um, cyclical ways and then to say for that we need some physical indication of at least the environmental elements that we're talking about. So that would be one of the diversifications that I think are really, really crucial, monetary plus other indications. And then um, to see how can we align that with other ideas that have been percolating in the SDG development for governments and for corporates, um, of course, as you hinted to it, is the well-being agenda to really say the productivity punch to really try to get more out of everything every input factor in particular, also labor, is really backfiring, not only on the performance in some key areas like health or care or others that have to do with the quality process. Um, Because when you're fostered to do everything faster and faster and are measured by, once again, purely economic performance indications, it really takes out the, the purpose that is not measurable in monetary terms when you talk to doctors my half family is that they say i've sworn the hippocratic oath and every single day i'm going into the hospital it is basically punched out of me whenever i go um to talk to our management because what they'll do is hold in my face whether i've made enough money on my award in that month less money meaning i had to do less bad interventions less people coming back because the interventions went really well, they want me to have made more money. And that forces me to go against everything that I've ethically subscribed to in my job. And the same holds true with people that are caring for others. So we really have to get out of the productivity lens in that unified way and say, what is the quality outcome and how do we want to measure this? And the well-being indicators are really good at what makes people feel good and well and appreciate it in the kind of relationships and will also tell us a lot about what are the kind of quality of processes of a lot of what we call services in our societies that are at the essence of shaping people's health but also people's education which is then the essence again of what you're saying the consciousness shift that we need how can people shift in consciousness if they're being forced to run through the day totally overworked and are not being given the kind of education that we think is required for that because also the education is just measured by the amounts that they will be making in the future. So the diversification out of purely monetary ways of measuring that I think is is really, really important as well. 
Right, you're you're um, closer than we are to what's happening in Berlin at the government level. Do you see this kind of shift occurring right now? What what is your feeling? What um, what is the temperature there? I think the temperature is <clears throat> that you very clearly notice that policy making is often trapped in needing to follow. Mm. Um, there are some people that are trying to change the way that they're also trying to engage with policymaking. So we have got first little labs in the uh, Ministry for Labor, for example, to say how can we understand the future of labor under the impact of digitalization. And that just means that they're more closely in exchange with people on the ground and in our societies to try to understand what is it doing to people. So they're trying to come closer to people. When it comes to the purely economics, it is such an upward battle. <laughs> it's really difficult. It's really, you, you have to shift the general discursive lens as the number one. I get calls from the sustainability departments, because you do have them, right, in every single uh, ministry, you do have the ones that are trying to bring sustainability forward. But in quite a few of them, they're really against the stream. And then they ask me, do we have proof, like hard facts, where sustainability has been an innovation driver? Because they are trying to give that as part of the speech for someone from the economics ministry at a summit. And I'm saying that you have to change the way this is looked at. You have to say, we want to get towards sustainability which are the innovations that have been most promising? You can't say we want innovation without any definition of what that means. Innovation can go any one direction. It's not qualified. And then sustainability measurements should judge or defend themselves against creating whatever you probably then jobs and growth measure as innovation. So we have to swap the means and ends discussion. It's super important. You have to first insist and say the ends is sustainable development and then the means is innovation and the, the justification moment lies on the people that are bringing forth innovation to show that they're servicing those ends and that is a huge one that was still an absolute upward battle which is why i think it is so 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 important to really go in the discourse and say where are means and ends confused what do we mean when we say growth competitiveness productivity or innovation what, what is supposed to be coming out what is the outcome that's hiding under those terminologies. Because otherwise we're just really kept hostage in the old ways of measuring, unless we make that explicit and demand that this needs to be taken out and made transparent. Yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> do you think that this has to do with um, the overall lack of or our inability to understand complexity and deal with it? Because for what, what I hear is just another short-term thinking. So here I have this discussion or speech to give. And so I come to you and you give me a, a thought on whatever in terms of innovation and what's coming and the future of work and what we need to look at and AI, this and that and the other and education. But that, you know, takes place without any sustainability thinking whatsoever. So we just... <laughs> go beyond sustainability, um, climate change and climate crisis and climate emergency to add artificial intelligence and not know what's actually awaiting us there that is even bigger than nuclear threat, mm -hmm. potentially. 
because mm-hmm. of this lack of awareness and lack of consciousness because we have all these unmitigated um, sources of bias uh, that are going to be built in if we don't wake up early enough. Do yes. you think that this has to do with our inability to handle complexity? I do, yes. I would think it has to do with our inability of handling complexity, not only individually. I mean, we're, when you look at how the, the day is for people in those kind of circumstances, they're being bombarded from loads of different directions with the best possible solution, right? A lot of them quite vested in particular interests and very short-term interests as well. And then they're being forced to present something in front of the media that will say, how is this going to have impact and short term? Because it is about re-election, it's about the next electoral cycle around the corner, and it is about people now fleeing from your party, going to a different party. This whole constant monitoring of demoscopic developments, of polling, of where would people vote tomorrow, and this and that. I mean, it creates a kind of frenzy that... I think makes it very hard if you're in that kind of profession. And this is what you're being tasked with to deliver answers on. Where on earth are you going to be able to develop the kind of thinking and reasoning and language and stamina to say, we're not going to tell you how we're going to stumble forward. We're going to tell you where we want to be. And not only to say it's a 2050 degree target for climate change, but we're going to tell you now, backcasted, what are the inf- interventions necessary and how we're going to embed that future vision into the way that we're going to monitor today. So we find the expression of the vision in the kind of indicators, in the kind of ways that we're benchmarking and monitoring and judging our progress. That would be the gutsy way forward. But right now, in this short-term fear, also to be the one that is responsible of making any one of those quite run down and thus unstable systems implode is really difficult on their job. So I think we have to find new actor coalitions that also allow for that kind of way of casting what is at stake. So how do we do that? Could AI basically punch in? And given the fact that AI represents a collective, the aggregation of collective wisdom, if it's guided right, maybe that could provide a more wise, a wiser way to change this rather than what we're doing now. The technology comes in to help us. Yeah. If it's guided properly, of course. That's that's exactly the point, the big if, right? I mean, we are... uh, I think at, at one point it would be... So A, it's really, really important to you to map those complex feedback mechanisms that we've been talking about between things that are now looked at in isolation. And that can be fantastically improved with all the computational power, the virtual reality moments, and AIs and pattern recognition, et cetera, to really say we're going to be more visually informed about how things are likely going to be evolving in the future. When it comes to decision-making, I think what we really have to build on right now is trust. And I'm not sure... I think in the kind of implementation, blockchain, and some of that technology can be really, really helpful there. But even Ethereum is now discussing about what is the human institutionalized elements that we need within that technological infrastructure in order to, A, make sure the kind of values and ideas that we want to see are 
properly implemented and that we're going to be early onwards vetting against any possible unintended consequences and deviations. So the good relationship between humans and the machine-enabled decision-making, visualization and transparency and accountability, I think those would be key. And then obviously, how do you get people in power right now to accept a transparency blockchain implemented across their entire supply chain if they know that this is going to force them out? And there, I think we have to have to prepare for quite political battles, but at least it would allow for a totally different way of ensuring that what is said to be the purpose on the outside might be wired in, hardwired in this point of view, um, into the way that the processes are being conducted. Right, right. So from the investor's perspective and entrepreneurship or business, young entrepreneur perspective, uh, would your recommendation be then to include somewhat this kind of technology in the decision-making process um, or to open up to artificial intelligence systems that could enhance their decision-making process? Mm -hmm. well, how could we mm -hmm. participate as mm -hmm. investors and entrepreneurs in this entire mm -hmm. conversation? I think my dream <laughs> is that we think about it from a systems innovation point of view. Because right now what we see is everyone asks, which is the technology that we should throw money at so that it solves our problems? And we can see just like money is a social technology and a um, relationship, all of that, what is being created there, is part of a relationship or an enabling force as well. And we should look at it that way to really say, what is the bigger issue that you're seeking to solve? And what is your understanding of the system, including the drivers that are letting it go into an unsustainable direction, for example? And where would be the interventions then to say, how do we get to the very positive vision of where is the highest potential of that particular system? And where are then technological solutions going to be fantastic helpers in closing transparency gaps or in linking people across boundaries or making information accessible for people that are not nerds or jargonized researchers? Whatever it is where you feel, and a lot of that will probably be a combination between um, technology in the proper sense of technology and then a social innovation where it's being embedded into. And really to think about it that way and also to think about what can that be the investment rationale in terms of your um, multivariated way of measuring the outcome, what would be the system innovation outcome? And I'm thinking that you probably have quite a lot of returns then that might not be visible at first that would be enabling um, outcomes. So enabling people to see systems, enabling people to collaborate across boundaries, either be their disciplinary boundaries or geographical boundaries or cultural boundaries, because you have other ways of translating um, possibility. And um, then to really also think about what is the resilience element in this. So how can this thing be supported in a way that it is a longer term idea and that you ensure that the entrepreneurship spirit there is not the one I'm going to go for an early exit. I'm going to try to get as close to the kill zone of the biggies as possible and then be a rich person and can do my digital nomad life from wherever for the rest of my life. I really think right now what we have to find are those people that are willing to really throw their weight behind a solution and make sure it is not being gobbled up into the capitalist platforms or monopolies. I, I think we can't call them anything else right now anymore and kind of hope that that will be turning it into something good. 
So what is the bottom-up multiplication system innovation approach and then have big platforms where people can learn from each other on those best solutions. But those need to be not privately held in terms of someone trying to make a profit because it's commercially run through advertising. Yes, and, and to quote uh, Peter Diamandis, the founder of um, Abundance Digital and Singularity University, he says, you know, if you want to become a billionaire, well, uh, solve the problems of a billion people, mm. give jobs to a billion people on this planet, you know, by addressing the grand global challenges. And I couldn't agree more. And you just described in beautiful words, you know, this uh, systems innovation uh, viewpoint and um, or mind how should I say, mind shift or view that toward which people can um, can move in describing their innovation, their idea, their uh, their business idea, because I think that's exactly the core. And this is basically what we do at um, at Aqual, which stands for the integral model. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's if you really have a, a global view of things. And you look at the solving your problem by by taking a global view, then you all of a sudden you cannot but look globally and address every single level of potential risk that you could have. And by doing that, you basically not only create more financial sustainability, but you address global problems because you take a more complex view and reduce risks through that. So yeah. that in itself actually is a solution. And uh, once people open up to this kind of thinking, you know, all of a sudden they see that they actually can make much, much, much more money with at the end of the day they don't need uh, because they're not after money anyways to begin with. But then you could do with it what you like, you know, have an impact, uh, donate it, whatever. So. Bikuniam non olet, as they say. But you know, the approach is exactly that one. And uh, so, from for the past 25, 30 years, we've done it and proven that it, that's how it works. But uh, we're not, we, we haven't reached the tipping point yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I could go on forever. You're such an eloquent speaker. But uh, what I'd like to know before we um, close what, um, what do you do? Uh, how do you take care of yourself so you can take care of others? What is your daily transformative practice? In the ideal world or in the real world? In the real world. I mean, how do you stay sane? <laughs> no, I think sanity is going up and down. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Exactly. Um, no, I mean, for me, weekends are absolutely, absolutely family time, for example. And I do have two afternoons as well where I look after the kids. And that is, sometimes it is um, part of, of a huge split in my heart when you think about the things that you preach every day and what needs to change. And then you feel you're withdrawing into your own little private life instead of being out there trying to make the difference. But in the end, it is the one reminder of why we're all doing that. And it is the one reminder that everything that we need is already there. I mean, when you listen to children about the joy that they can have about a puddle, that is just a fantastic splosh. Or the first snow, or a rabbit that is bouncing out of a cornfield. 
it is, I mean, it shows you that there is nothing that we have to run after. There is everything here if we take good care of it and we, if we manage to share it equally. And that we can do that with a lot of joy. And so for me, spending time with my children has, has those reminders all through them every single day. And at the same time, sometimes solitude is the only way to get towards sanity. So sitting there, breathing, trying not to think about solutions, but only accepting that things will go the way they will go and that you can make your tiny little dent there. But in the end, it will be the collective that's going to determine it. And it's not on your shoulders only to save this world. Amen. Right? Yeah. Be present now. Be here now. Yeah. Yeah. How do you want to be remembered? I would love to be remembered as someone that spoke truth to power, that liked to ask questions, even if people said she would only deliver answers, because I believe in questions, and that always had a laugh and had the moment to pause when someone was in need for help. How beautiful. Thank you so much for being such a great force for good and for enlightening my life and that of um, so many people in your world. Um, have happy holidays. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, thank you so much. Wisdom. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mariana, for all that you're doing. And I really look forward to learning more about the details of everything that you're shaking and making. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. For more on Dr. Gupu, follow her on Twitter at beyond underscore ideology or on LinkedIn. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.